Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. All right, welcome back to uh, Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Today, I just wanted to bring up one of my quirks about myself, which is animated movies. Love them. <laughs> quote them all the time. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. 50% of my vocabulary is movie quotes, <laughs> probably on any given day. <laughs> but no one's studied me yet. I hope they do, though. Um, but one of them is Inside Out. So Inside Out is like every therapist's dream movie. Like, I'm pretty sure therapists just told Disney to do it and they sponsored the whole movie because every therapist probably uses it. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard good things about Inside Out from many, many of my professors. Yes. So I hope you've watched it. Have you seen it? Oh yeah. Oh, I've good, yeah, good. that's that I love that one. Good Every time movie. my brothers and I we're very nostalgic and we love to bring up old memories. And whenever there's like a really good one, it, we call those core memories. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> the core memory oh, yeah. of you guys joking over the dinner table. <laughs> Yeah, dude. So uh, Inside Out, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's great. But if you think about Inside Out, I, like the idea behind it is awesome because it's kind of like in Riley's mind, she's pushing away sadness. And she's like, no, sadness, you can't exist. you know. And then it causes all these problems and, and Goofball Island gets destroyed. And what do we do? <laughs> Goofball Island. <laughs> so anyways, the, the whole journey is really great. It's a good movie. But in the end, what happens is... Sadness touches the core memories, and they turn blue, and they're sad, but that helps Riley connect with her family. So it, it just kind of demonstrates that not everything is joy, happy, awesome all the time. Sometimes you can be sad, and that's actually like good for you. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, come on, therapists. Like, yes, good, <laughs> good therapist movie. Say it louder. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I just want you guys to think about that and think about those core memories that you have that are maybe tinted with sadness um, and and how valuable they are to you. So with that in mind, I didn't want what we talk about today to take away from the importance of like being sad because it's important to be sad sometimes. Uh, but today we're going to talk about naming emotions and the role that uh, naming emotions can play in our lives. So the studies that we've found are super exciting and they teach us a little bit, you know, a, a few strategies that we uh, can use to feel positive emotions a bit more. And I'm not saying negative emotions are bad. I don't want to do that today, but I also want to recognize, yeah, I want to, I want to feel positive emotions <laughs> more often. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, I think everyone wants to feel more positive emotions. Yes. I, uh, I, TA for a clinical psychology class and the professor is a grad student that I also work with and she talks all the time about how when she meets with clients in therapy they set goals together and one of the first things the client generally mentions is I want more happiness in my life and I think that's something that most of us can relate to no matter how happy we are more happiness seems nice (laughs) yeah totally so Naming emotions has been uh, like a tool that therapists have been using for a while. But what it is, it's really exactly what I just said. It's just if you're feeling an emotion, then you say, I am feeling emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's all naming your emotions is. It's not saying this emotion is bad. It's not saying this emotion is good. It's just saying, I am feeling 
X, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's, that's what naming emotions are. And so Ben, he's going to start us off with the first study and let's get pumping. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to show studies from both sides of this. So our first paper we're going to be talking about is naming negative emotions. And then the study McKay will talk about is about naming positive emotions. So this first paper is called Feelings into Words, Contributions of Language to Exposure Therapy. It was published in Psychological Science in 2012 by Kirsansky, Lieberman, and Krask. So this was a four by three design, which means there were four groups at three different times. See? <laughs> um, no, no, wait, say that one more time. <laughs> four by three design, four groups, three times. Nice, okay, got it. <laughs> four times three is 12, just in case anyone's counting. Um, so the four groups were affect labeling, reappraisal, distraction, and exposure alone. And I'll come back to this because it doesn't quite make sense yet. And then the three different times were pretest, immediate post-test, and one week post-test. I'll also come back to that. Doesn't make sense yet. So they had 88 participants who were in the top quartile on a spider phobia questionnaire. So this... <laughs> I would love... I'm certain my younger sister is also in the top quartile. <laughs> Both of them, actually. Yeah, this study is pretty... I don't know. Evil is like not the right word, but it's like <laughs> I would I I feel really bad for these participants because they is this these are undergrad students in a class and they had them take a spider like a spider phobia questionnaire and the the, the students that had the most fear of spiders they were like yep you're in <laughs> we're gonna make you oh, come close hilarious. to spiders so they so that that's who that's who our participants are they have a lot of fear of spiders. So one thing to note is, like I said, it's from an undergraduate psychology course and some people from the community they also recruited. They were 82% female and 18% male. Um, Part of that is just because there are more female students in psychology classes than males. Fun fact. So participants were brought outdoors where they would slowly approach a tarantula in a cage. So they'd start out five feet away, and every 30 seconds, they would take a step closer until they were close enough to touch it. And then on the last step, they would touch the spider continuously for 30 seconds with the tip of their index finger. I know. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. They would. Yeah. No way, dude. Yeah. I, how, I don't... how did they get these people to do that? Yeah, That's so my question. They didn't like force them to do that, but that was the goal. That was what they were aiming for. And they did this a bunch of times. And so part of the assessment, part of the measure, the variable that they were measuring was how close they could actually get to the spider because not every participant could oh touch goodness. the spider. Yeah, I'm thinking about my younger sisters. No way. <laughs> Sorry, Grace and Lizzie. There's, I, I don't see you doing that. Maybe you could, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, Becca, Becca definitely could not either. I'm the designated spider handler in our house. Spider killer. <laughs> I, this reminds me of a story. Sorry, this is a tangent. One time. My sister left her shoes in the garage, and oh, I was, no. like, 18. She was 16. Then she, like, she was going to put her shoes on. She's like, okay, will you check my shoes to see if there's a spider in there? And I'm like, there's not going to be a spider in there. Like, you're just crazy, you know? Like, you're you're thinking way too hard about these <laughs> spiders. <laughs> and she was like, no, it's just been, like, a fear of mine that they crawl in my shoes, and then I put them on, then they're in there. <laughs> and I was like... I'm not going to check your shoe. She's like, please. And I was like, okay, fine. And then I pretended to check the shoe and I didn't actually check the shoe. Uh And she put her foot in and there was a huge wolf spider in her shoe. No way. Did it bite her? (laughs) No. And she just put it on. She's like, ah, it was wiggly. And she threw it out and I saw it crawl out. And I was like, I'm (laughs) I'm sorry. You're right. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, 
is hilarious, honestly. So funny. Just so ironic. But I feel somewhat not really bad, but just, you know, it was just so funny. <laughs> Anyways. So putting this into practice, our main takeaways are <laughs> always, check your shoes. Always check your shoes <laughs> if you leave them in the garage. Because there will be a spider in there. <laughs> <laughs> and be honest to your siblings so it doesn't happen to them. <laughs> exactly. That's lesson on honesty, kids. So, yeah, they would walk closer to the spider and then they would eventually touch it and they would leave their finger on it on this tarantula. So the participants were then brought inside and divided into one of the four groups I mentioned before. We'll come back to that in a sec. They were presented another tarantula in a cage. And so they sat two feet away from it and they stared at the cage for 38 seconds. So for the first eight seconds, they would just stare at it. And then after eight seconds of each trial, a tone would play, like a gong or something, to prompt the participants to follow some group-specific instructions. So depending on which group they were in, they would have some sort of instructions of what they were supposed to do. And then they would repeat these trials ten times. Here's where the group comes in, and here's the specific instructions for these trials. So there's the affect labeling. These participants were instructed to speak a sentence, including a negative word, to describe the spider, and a negative word or two to describe their emotional response to the spider. So, for example, I feel anxious, the disgusting tarantula will jump on me. The people in the reappraisal group were instructed to create and speak a sentence, including a neutral word to describe the spider, and a neutral word to describe a way of thinking about the spider in order to feel less negatively about it. So, for example, looking at the little spider is not dangerous for me. Pretty neutral. Then there's the distraction group. These people created and spoke a sentence including an an object or piece of furniture found in their home and a room or location where the object was found. So there is a television in front of my couch in the den, for example. And then the last group, the exposure alone, received no instructions. So they would just look at the spider for all 38 of the seconds and not say anything. Okay, so to recap, just so I'm getting this... (laughs) They walk up, touch the spider. Wow, crazy scary. Walk back inside. Oh, another spider. Dang it. And so they sit next to it, stare at it for 38 seconds. First eight seconds, gong, ding. And then they do one of the four things that they were assigned. Mm, yeah, and they say that sentence out loud as they're looking at this spider. Okay, okay. So they say it out loud. Uh-huh, yeah, so after that, after the 10 trials, so they do this 10 times. So there's 30 seconds, 38 seconds of looking and saying, and they have a minute break where they cover the spider. And they lift it back up, and they do it again. And they do this 10 times. Wow, that sounds boring. <laughs> yeah. So And then after these 10 trials, they go back outside, and they step towards the spider again. Interesting. So that Ooh. is the post-test. So the pre-test is that initial walking them outside and then having them walk towards the spider. And then the intervention is them sitting in front of the spider and saying those sentences. And then the post-test is going back out again and seeing how they do with the spider. So how they monitored how well they responded was in three ways. The first way was they measured their skin conductance, a.k.a. their sweatiness. So they had them monitored by how sweaty they got as they approached the spider. They were also measured by their behavior so the researchers were just looking for certain behaviors as they're walking closer to the spider and obviously if you couldn't stand any closer and if you didn't touch it that's obviously an indication of fear of the spider and the third way was participants rated their own fears so they were given a measure and they marked down how fearful they felt during that experience so the results are really interesting, I think. Wow, exciting. <laughs> so first off, there was no difference between the groups in their spider phobia questionnaire scores before the study. So that's just to note these groups were all 
on average the same in their spider phobia questionnaire scores before the study happened. Next, the participants in the affect labeling group, so the ones who said this horrible, yucky spider is, I'm, I'm anxious because the spider's going to jump on me. The people who were in that group, they had significantly lower sweatiness scores than the three other groups. However, there was no difference between the groups in their behavior or their self-reported fear, which was interesting. So they acted the same, they reported the same levels of fear, but the people in the affect appraising group had less sweat as they were approaching the spider than the rest of them. So there, there was less of a physiological response as they were doing this. So I think that's an interesting finding. You would expect that if they had less sweatiness, they would also report feeling less fear. But I mean, if you're in the top quartile of spider phobia, I imagine that it's hard to tell the difference between sheer terror and maybe a little bit less terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's super interesting because it's it kind of shows, hey, things are still scary, but like you can handle it maybe a little mm -hmm. bit better. Yeah. You yeah. know, so if, if fearful things happen to you, you're a little less like physiologically worked mm -hmm. up, which would be helpful to right. like your mental game, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, during stressful events or fearful events. Uh -huh. Yeah, for sure. But I like that. That's so cool and cruel as well. <laughs> yeah, that's the word I was looking for, cruel. <laughs> Not evil, <laughs> cruel. <laughs> cruel. All right, cool. So my study, like Ben said, is about naming positive emotions. It's entitled Affect Labeling Increases the Intensity of Positive Emotions. This is by Vlasenko, Rogers, and Woe. This is published in 2021 in Cognition and Emotion. So this is super new, one year old. Uh, so this is kind of a, how would you say, it? like a pioneer study? I could, I, there's like, I this was the only one I could find on positive emotional labeling. Hmm. Cool. So this is seems to be newer and not lots of people have done research on it. So it's, it's pretty exciting. The researchers took 49 participants and split them into three groups. Each of the groups were shown pictures of things. So group one labeled the emotions of the pictures they saw. Group two labeled the content of the pictures that they saw. And group three just viewed the image. So you just see a bunch of pictures and then you label them differently based on which group you're on. The labeling of positive emotions led participants to report higher levels of positive emotional intensity as compared to the labeling content group, and the view pictures alone. So if you labeled a positive emotion, say you saw someone's emotion, you're like, oh, that is happy. Then their emotional intensity of, of the participant was rated as higher than if you just said, that is someone smiling. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So specifically naming the emotion uh, seemed to increase positive emotional intensity, which is cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. So researchers did a follow-up study that showed that this effect persisted even if there was a delay in the labeling of positive pictures. So even if there was like a short delay between labeling, they would still feel this positive emotional intensity. So uh, <clears throat> however, they did find that negative emotional intensity decreased the most in the labeling content group. So this goes a little bit against um, what most of the research out there says, which most of the research that has been done has found that if you label a negative emotion, you feel less of that emotion. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so they compared labeling negative emotions to just describing what was going on, and they found that describing what's going on actually was better than labeling negative emotions. Shrugging my shoulders, don't really know, you know, science. <laughs> Thanks, science. TBD um, on that one. <laughs> yeah. So obviously more work needs to be done, but uh, content labeling is kind of like distraction, and distraction is a tool that some therapists do recommend but not in the long term, from what I understand. Would you have anything to say about that, Ben? Um, so just to clarify here, just to make sure I'm getting this. So they labeled the positive emotions and that intensified those positive emotions, right? And then yes. with, these, with these negative emotions. If you saw someone crying, mm -hmm. you would say that what the, the labeling emotion group would say that person's sad. Okay. And then the labeling content group would say that person oh, is crying. Gotcha. And then the third group would just look at it. Okay, gotcha. And so the content labeling group would that that group reported significantly less negative emotional response. Does okay. That make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So labeling positive emotions increase those positive emotions, but mm -hmm. then labeling the sad thing that was happening just the the content the negative content that decreased the negative emotion which is contrary yes. to most of the research yes that makes sense mm -hmm. okay i'm i'm caught up okay so yeah so it, it this is a little bit against what most of the research says which is interesting to note am i a researcher no do i do this no but do i encourage all those researchers to do more research yes i do <laughs> <laughs> so yeah here's an example of just there's there's some conflict in research and if you were to add up all the research that currently has been done, it would be in the favor of labeling negative emotions leads to less negative emotion. Mm -hmm. But this this is one study that found the contrary. So because this is like a little bit conflicting, I would love to see like an fMRI study done with the same goals to see if, you know, you could see something in the brain that when you, you know, label something a negative emotion, then you see what areas light up, you know, mm -hmm. but that'd be really cool. What uh, did you take away from reading this research, Ben? My main takeaway was it can be really helpful to label whatever emotion you're feeling. And we've talked about this before, just not running from your emotions, but just embracing them and accepting whatever they are. Americans are super weird in the way that we always say good when someone asks us how we're doing, no matter how we're doing at all, especially if you don't really know that person. How's it going? Good. How about you? Good. Good. Then you Good. <laughs> yeah. One thing, this is... Uh, this is something that I really appreciate about Ukrainian culture is when you ask someone how they're doing, they will give you one, an honest response, but two, if things are just average, they will just say that they'll say like, Hey, how's it going? Normal. Or like, how's everything going? Everything's normal, which I think is awesome because that is like the most honest response you can give. Nothing special is going on. This is normal. Everything's normal. Normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that. Or they'll just say norm. How's everything going? Norm. Norm. Yeah. The huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can do that in public, say good, because it's a social norm. But when you're by yourself, by labeling whatever negative emotions you are having can decrease the grip that emotion has on you. That was that was my main takeaway. It's just be honest with yourself. You don't have to be honest with passerbys on the street, but being honest with yourself and just thinking, how am I feeling right now? I am feeling anxious or I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling pretty great right now. That can help amplify those positive emotions and can deamplify those negative emotions and can help you work through those as well. Like if you, if you snap at your partner or spouse or a good friend or something or a roommate and 
you regret it, but you kind of already have done it. And so you just kind of keep plowing through. If you take a moment and think, why did I do that? Why am I feeling so ramped up right now? I'm feeling really anxious about this thing that's going on. That can help you begin to sort through those emotions and can help avoid more snapping at loved ones. Love it. I want to try labeling my positive emotions. See how that goes. Um, I know it might be a little cheesy, <laughs> a little weird, <laughs> at least for me. Like, uh-huh. I think that would be weird if, if I'm just feeling super happy. I'm like, I'm so happy. <laughs> weird. <laughs> but I want to try it, see how it goes, and see if I, uh, um, you know, experience more of that. Mm-hmm. And and not, not like just not ignore my negative emotions, but, you know, mm-hmm. recognize, but especially try to just say, hey, I'm feeling good right now. Yeah. This feels great. Yeah. I like that a lot. My wife, Becca, is actually really good at doing that. She, When she is doing something she enjoys, she always talks about it while it's happening and after. She lets you know. Yeah, she lets you know. <laughs> well, and it like it's really important for her to express like her gratitude for being able to do those things. But also, she just like in those moments of happiness, she just loves to talk about how happy she is and how much she's enjoying doing whatever it is we're doing. And so yeah, I, I think she's a great example of of naming those positive emotions. I'm sure it helps amplify those emotions for her. Nice. So with that in mind, I'm feeling sad that this podcast episode is over, but I'm feeling happy that we'll be able to come and do this again next week. You have been listening to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We have shared with you only two articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject. Though we wish we could go more in depth, we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic. We don't claim to know everything, but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading the research. I'm McKay. And I'm Ben. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.